evening as my poster outside will variously tell you this is the first of a sequence of five listed and I think six in fact lectures at 6 p.m. on Monday night would somebody let the poor soul in from the back thank you the sixth being Claire Van Vliet who will be here on the 7th of April excuse me on the 7th of May uh, talking about the modern private press movement since World War II. Friends of the Book Arts Press will get an announcement about that in miscellaneous other events for the May-June period before the relentless schedule of rare books school opens up in July. Our lecture this evening, however, and you all should have a handout supporting that lecture, there are more at the back of the room if you don't, is Fred Schreiber from E.K. Schreiber Rare Books. I thought that Fred was a nickname for Mr. E.K. Schreiber, but he informed me recently that E.K. Schreiber is Ellen Schreiber, and Fred is an employee of his wife's. He is perhaps the most distinguished bookseller specializing in Renaissance books of his generation, and it is a great pleasure to have him here tonight, repeating in part a lecture that he gave at the University of North Carolina last spring in conjunction with the three millionth acquisition by the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and that three millionth acquisition being the celebrated collection of SDN volumes put together by E.K. Schreiber Rare Books, and bought for the University of North Carolina through the generosity of the Haynes Foundation. It's a pleasure to have him here tonight, Mr. Fred Schreiber. When I was asked to speak about the collection of Etienne editions, which has now found a permanent home at Chapel Hill, it was not long before I was confronted by an unexpected difficulty. Since seven years of my life were almost entirely devoted to the pursuit, acquisition, and study of the more than 300 volumes which now form the Haynes Etienne collection, I find it impossible when speaking about these books, to do so in a totally objective tone which befits a scholarly discussion and which characterized the previous Haynes lectures. Some of these volumes hold for me the particular memories of the circumstances under which they were acquired, and others of the thrill of discovery when, in a rare or previously unrecorded edition, I was able to come upon new biographical information about a member of the great Etienne dynasty, or upon fresh documentation that could help solve old bibliographical or historical problems. In what follows, I shall attempt to share with you some of these discoveries and thus illustrate the research potentials which reside in such collections of old 16th century books. In order to focus these details in their proper historical perspective, it would be useful first to review some basic facts about the Etiennes. The Etienne, or Stephanus, family is today universally acknowledged to be the greatest dynasty of scholar printers in history, surpassing in both scholarly and typographical achievement the productions of their illustrious Italian counterpart, the Venetian House of Aldus. Since it would be impractical as well as unnecessary in this brief outline to review the activities of all 12 individuals 
representing five generations of Etiennes, engaged in a family business in two European centers, Paris and Geneva, for a period spanning well over a century and a half, I shall concentrate on the dynasty's three most important members, Henri I, founder of the house, his son, Robert I, and Robert's son, Henri II. The founder of the Etienne dynasty of scholar printers, Henri Etienne I, established himself as a printer and bookseller by means of a practice typical of the Renaissance book trade. He married the widow of a master printer who had died without heirs able to carry on the family business. The year was 1502, and in the spring of that year, a new Latin paraphrase of Aristotle's Ethics by Jacques Lefebvre de Taples was displayed for sale in a bookshop on the Rue Saint-Jean-de-Beauvais near the School of Canon Law in Paris. The colophon of this book, dated 7 May 1502, recorded that it had been, quote, completed at the University of Paris by Wolfgang Hopiel and Henri Etienne, Henrico Stephanus, partners in the art of printing, and is found for sale at the Rabbit's Press in Officina Cuniculorum, near the School of Canon Law. We should note two important facts. In its very first recorded appearance in print, the name Etienne is given in its Greco-Latinized form, Stephanus, a practice in which Henri I was to be followed by all his descendants. The second noteworthy fact is that we first meet the name Etienne as part of a business association with the printer Wolfgang Hopiel, whose first partner had been Johann Higman. It was the latter's widow, one Guillaume Villard, whom Henri Etienne had married thereby establishing himself in the business, though he must already have been associated with the firm in some capacity. After producing four more books in partnership with Hopiel, Etienne set out on his own the following year, becoming the official printer of the University of Paris, thanks to his close association with Jacques Lefebvre de Taples, also known by his Latinized name Faber Stapulensis, the leader of the humanist movement at the University of Paris. We have already seen that Etienne's very first publication was a work by Lefebvre. In fact, it is difficult to open any one of Henri Etienne's publications without finding in it Lefebvre's name as author, editor, translator, or contributor. Henri Etienne's publications were consequently marked strongly by Lefebvre's own principal intellectual concerns which included, besides Aristotelian philosophy, biblical exegesis, patristic literature, and the tradition of medieval Christian mysticism, as well as the mathematical and physical sciences. Purely literary texts are conspicuously absent from Henri's production of approximately 150 editions, virtually all of which are in Latin. Thus, Henri Etienne became a highly specialized publisher-printer to the university book trade, supplying students and scholars with the required scientific, philosophical, and liturgical texts. Henri publicized his association with the university on the title pages of his books, which he had decorated with ornamental woodcut borders, incorporating in their design both his own initials and the arms of the University of Paris. 
Although Henri produced books primarily to fulfill a practical purpose, he is also known for the great care he took in their physical appearance. This is perhaps best exemplified by Lefebvre's Psalter of 1509, the famous quintuplex psalterium, generally recognized as Henri Etienne's typographic masterpiece, as well as one of the monuments of early French Renaissance printing. When Henri I died in 1520, he left three sons, Francois, Robert, and Charles, none of whom was old enough to take over the family business. Consequently, Guillaume Villard took a third husband to manage the, the Etienne firm until such time as one of her sons would be able to take over. This third husband was Simon de Colline, who had been associated with Henri Etienne, possibly as typecutter. Colline managed the Etienne press under his own name for six years. During this period, he adopted a trademark representing rabbits, perhaps as a visual pun on his name. The colloquial French word for rabbit was conil, from the Latin cuniculus. There may, however, be another meaning in Colleen's printer's device, consisting of a commemoration of his predecessor, who, we have seen, began his distinguished career at the rabbit's press, Officina Cuniculorum. Later, when Colleen established himself independently, he replaced the rabbit's device with his now better known emblem, an allegorical winged figure of time wielding his scythe. By 1526, Henri's son Robert had qualified as a master printer and began printing at his father's address under his own name and new trademark, representing an olive tree. While his stepfather, Simon de Colline, set him, himself up further down the street where his business continued to flourish. Very early in his career, in 1528, with the publication of his first folio Bible, Robert Etienne became the most outstanding figure in the Renaissance book trade in France. This monumental folio Bible is not only a magnificent volume, but is also considered the earliest genuine, genuine attempt at a critical edition of the Vulgate text, edited from manuscripts by Robert himself, who thus established himself as the scholar printer par excellence, making permanent contributions in both fields, scholarship and typography. As a printer, especially as royally appointed printer in Greek, Robert Etienne occupies today a major place in the history of typography. It is to him primarily that the Etienne dynasty owes its reputation in this field. As a scholar, he has left a permanent mark on lexicography and on classical as well as biblical scholarship. In 1539, King Francois I appointed Robert Etienne his official royal printer in Hebrew and Latin. Three years later, when he was appointed royal printer as, as well, in Greek as well, Robert commissioned the famous type founder Claude Garamond to cut a new Greek font intended specifically to be used to print Greek books from important unpublished Greek manuscripts in a royal library. These new royal Greek cursive types, I'm sorry, these new royal Greek types known as Grec du Roi are now acknowledged as the finest Greek cursive types ever cut. 
In his capacity as royal printer in Greek, Robert produced several first editions of Greek authors, from the Eusebius of 1544 to the Apian of 1551, most of which he edited himself, occasionally with the assistance of his gifted teenage son, Henri II. These Greek texts represent his greatest contribution to classical scholarship. Robert Etienne may also be regarded as the founder of modern lexicography with the publication in 1531 of his Latinae Linguae Thesaurus, which remains to this day the only complete work of its kind in a field of Latin lexicography. No comparable work has yet replaced or surpassed it since the Latin thesaurus begun in Germany at the end of the last century is still far from completion. But it is perhaps to his work as a biblical scholar and printer that Robert Etienne owes the better part of his fame and where he exerted his deepest and most lasting influence. It is to him, for example, that we owe the division of the text of the Bible into the numbered sections or verses that provide a universally accepted system of reference to the scriptures. We are told that Robert marked these verse divisions while traveling on horseback. This has led some critics to explain some of the infelicitous divisions of the text by the stumblings of a tired horse which bumped Robert's pen into the wrong places. Ironically, it is also because of his biblical work that Robert Etienne was eventually forced to leave France and to seek refuge in Protestant Geneva. Robert had produced numerous editions of the scriptures in four languages, and with every new edition he came into conflict with the influential Paris faculty of theology of the Sorbonne, who found evidence of heresy in every aspect of his biblical work. The worst offender in their eyes was the splendid 1550 folio edition of the Greek New Testament, with the with its variant readings from 15 manuscripts printed in the margins where they stuck out as if in defiance of the authority of the church. No longer enjoying the powerful protection of King Francois I, who had died three years earlier, Robert found himself compelled to transfer his family and business to Geneva, where he embraced Calvinism. By the beginning of 1551, Robert had a press in Geneva, while his Paris establishment was handed over by the king to Robert's brother, Charles, who had remained faithful to Catholicism. Consequently, from 1551 on, there existed Etienne presses both in Paris and Geneva, to the confusion of modern bibliographers and booksellers. It has been said that Robert Etienne's greatest contribution to the world of scholarship was to have been the father of Henri the Younger, Henri Etienne II also known as Henri Le Grand Etienne, to distinguish him from his grandfather, as well as to emphasize his genuine greatness, is indeed, in many ways, the greatest member of the Etienne dynasty. He was brought up speaking Latin at home and learned Greek as a child. While still in his teens, he was initiated to what was, be what was to become the work of his life by assisting his father in correcting Greek texts. Between 1547 and 1555, he traveled extensively to Italy, the Low Countries, and England in search of Greek manuscripts, 
from one of these he had printed in 1554 what he and most of his contemporaries believed to be the ancient Greek lyrics of the 6th century poet Anacreon, but which we now know to be later imitations. Nevertheless, Henri's edition revolutionized the course of French lyric poetry by deeply influencing the poets of the Pléiade, notably Ronsard, who immortalized Henri Etienne and his discovery of Anacreon in one of his odes. Je vais boire en Henri Etienne qui des enfers nous a rendu du vieil Anacreon perdu la douce lyre théienne. The following year, in 1555, Henri joined his father in Geneva, where he established his own press. On his father's death in 1559, Henri took control of the family business in Geneva with financial backing from Ulrich Fugger, a member of the wealthy Augsburg banking family. Although he never quite became as great a printer as his father, Henri II nevertheless emerges as the greatest scholar of the entire Etienne dynasty, establishing himself as one of the dominant literary and scholarly figures of the second half of the 16th century in Europe. His most lasting contributions were made in the field of Greek studies through his numerous editions of ancient Greek authors, which often became the standard text for the next two or even three centuries. The most important as well as the most famous of these is unquestionably the great Plato of 1578 in three folio volumes. This edition has contributed considerably to immortalizing the Etienne name in that to this day, its pagination provides the universally accepted system of reference to the text of Plato. Such, in fact, is the influence of Henri Etienne's Plato that even modern students of the classics or philosophy who may not otherwise be familiar with the name Etienne or Stephanus must cite the Platonic text after the Stephanus numbers. However, by far Henri II's greatest achievement his is truly monumental Thesaurus Graecae Linguae, published in 1572 in five folio volumes. The publication of this Greek thesaurus marked a great event of his career, as well as a high point in the annals of European scholarship. Like his father's Latin thesaurus, Henri's Greek thesaurus was also a pioneering lexicographical work following the scientific, scientific principle, excuse me, following <clears throat> the scientific principle of arranging words not in a traditionally strict alphabetical order, but rather grouped according to their etymological roots. Furthermore, like Robert Etienne's Latin work, Henri's Greek thesaurus still has not been replaced remaining to this day in a modern reprint, an essential tool for the study of Greek. Had Henri Etienne produced nothing else, his name would forever be secure in the history of humanism. Unlike most of the humanists who preceded him, he did not neglect the study of his own native language. And his vernacular works, especially his trilogy on the defense and glorification of French, have earned him a distinguished place among the foremost French prose writers of the 16th century, outranked only by Rabelais and Montaigne. Henri never fully recovered the enormous expense that went into the publication of his thesaurus and Plato, 
and he continued to sink deeper and deeper into financial difficulties. He found himself more and more frequently on the road in search of new markets for his stock. During one of these trips, he died destitute in a Lyon hospital. These, then, are some of the essential facts about the three most important members of the Etienne dynasty, as one would expect to find them outlined in the, in the critical literature. Unfortunately, the situation is not quite that simple. When I began, when I began doing research on the Etiennes, I was struck by the abundance of misinformation and contradiction concerning them in our literary histories and handbooks. Despite the Etienne's renown and undisputed importance, there prevails widespread confusion, misapprehension, and often sheer ignorance, even on the part of experts concerning who is who, or who did what, and where, among the various members of this distinguished French Renaissance family. One area of controversy involves Henri II's birth date, which we find given as either 1528 or 1531 depending on which authority we happen to consult. But perhaps the most common source of confusion involves the books printed by the Geneva branch of the Etiennes, starting in 1551 after Robert's removal to that city. We still regularly see these Genevan books listed in booksellers and library catalogues, and even in scholarly monographs and bibliographies with Parisian or other imprints. The reason for this confusion is partly that the books printed by the Geneva branch of the Etiennes commonly omit all indication of place of origin from their title pages. This omission was dictated by a desire not to prejudice the sale of these books abroad, for their Protestant origin would have been a severe obstacle to their financial success. In fact, Henri II went even one step further not only did he invariably suppress in his publications all indication of their Genevan origin, but on their title pages he would occasionally style himself Henrico Stephanus Parisiensis Typographus, Henri Etienne, Parisian printer, thus wishing to give the impression that his books were printed in Paris, a 16th century instance of misleading advertising. For although Henri II was indeed, indeed Parisian by birth and a printer by profession, he had never practiced his profession outside of Geneva. As I mentioned before, confusion about the Etiennes affects not merely the casual dilettante, but even the greatest scholars. A striking case in point is the recent publication of the English translation of the history of classical scholarship from the original German of one who is considered, by the consensus of the profession, the greatest classical scholar of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Ulrich von Wilamowitz Möllendorf, not only one of the greatest names in classical scholarship, but also, as you can see, one of the longest. <laughs> Wilamowitz says the following about Robert Etienne and his son Henri, quote, Robert Stephanus was the first to print the Greek Old Testament and the numbering of the verses in our Bible goes back to him. His thesaurus linguae latinae was the model for the Greek thesaurus of his greater son Henri, greater as a printer too, unquote. This short passage contains two glaring errors. Not only was Robert Etienne not the first to print the Greek Old Testament, by which I assume is meant the Septuagint, 
but he never printed it. Even if we allow that old is a slip for new, Villamovis's statement is still incorrect. For Robert Etienne was by no means the first to print the Greek New Testament either. As to Robert's son Henri being a greater printer than he, this is of course not true by any standard of, ev of evaluation one wishes to apply. Robert Etienne, royal printer, is one of the most eminent names in the history of typography, a status not shared by son Henri, who made his reputation primarily as a humanist. Villamovitz's history of classical scholarship originally appeared in German in 1921. The 61 years which separate the original German version from the recent English translation, which, incidentally, is edited with introduction and notes by the current Regis Professor of Greek at Oxford, have done little to clear up our confusion about the Etiennes. I believe that this widespread misinformation about the Etiennes may go back to a specific source, which I should now like to trace and illustrate by means of a flagrant instance of biographical distortion concerning Henri Etienne II. The only member of the Etienne family who has been served well by modern scholarship is Robert I, on whom we are fortunate to have the excellent book-length biographical study by Elizabeth Armstrong, Robert Etienne, Royal Printer, published in 1954. No comparable work exists for any other member of the dynasty, including Robert's son, the great Henri II, who has not received the scholarly attention which his high standing in Renaissance intellectual history deserves. The last book devoted to him was published at the close of the 19th century and focused on a specialized aspect of his work, an evaluation of his vernacular writings. Consequently, scholars wishing to undertake serious research on Henri Etienne II must, by default, still begin with the biobibliography by Antoine Augustin Renoir, first published in 1838, with a revised edition five years later available in a modern reprint. It is commonly, but as, as I hope to demonstrate mistakenly, assumed that Renoir's Annales de l'Imprimerie des Etiennes partakes of the accuracy and reliability that characterized his earlier work on the Old Dean Press, which will always stand as a model of the biobibliographical genre. But such is not the case, for it can readily be shown that Renoir's work on the Etiennes, completed when he was nearly 80, is a most unreliable guide to the Etiennes' lives and works, filled with gross errors, misleading assertions, and far-fetched hypotheses. For one thing, a fundamental fault of Renoir's book, and one that seems to have escaped notice, is that it relies too uncritically on a much earlier history of the Etiennes, the Historia Stephanorum by Michael Metair, published in 1709. This, though adequate and even admirable for its day, is, by modern standards, based on an imperfect knowledge and control of primary sources. A good example relates to Henri Etienne's date of birth. Uh, when I mention Henri Etienne now, you should assume it's Henri Etienne II, which Metair gave as 1528, without citing any documentary evidence. This date was accepted by Renoir, who, though he does not even cite Metair as his direct source, goes to great lengths to defend it against available evidence pointing to the true date of 1531. 
From Renoir, the erroneous date was accepted by many later scholars, including the great, the great British critic Mark Patterson, from whom it has filtered down into modern scholarship where it may still occasionally be found. A more insidious biographical distortion, insidious in that it is still generally accepted as fact without ever having been suspected as a distortion, that may also be traced to Renoir, is the belief that in his teens, Henri Etienne studied Greek at the Collège de France under the great Hellenist Jacques Toussaint. Renoir based this assertion on an interesting biographical document, which he obviously had read in Metair, who had reprinted it in its entirety, a dedicatory epistle that Charles Etienne, brother of Robert and uncle of Henri II, prefixed to a new edition of his horticultural handbook, De Re Hortensi, a sort of child's guide to gardening, which had first appeared in 1535. Charles dedicates the new preface to his nephew, whom he addresses with such diminutives as Henriculus and Nepotulus, my dear little Henry and my dear little nephew, congratulating him upon starting his studies with the great Toussaint. The edition of De Re Hortensi, from which Metair and consequently Renoir, quote Charles Etienne's preface, was published in 1545, which Renoir assumed to be the earliest edition to contain that preface. Therefore, if, as Renoir claimed, Henri II was born in 1528, he was 17 when he began studying on the Toussaint, presumably at the Collège de France, where Toussaint had been appointed royal professor of Greek, However, upon reading Charles Etienne's preface, I found that it cannot be made to yield the meaning that Renoir wished to extract from it. Since Charles Etienne's Latinity is most straightforward and clear, we are forced to assume that Renoir purposely distorted its meaning in order to make it fit his erroneous hypothesis that Henri was born in 1528 and was therefore 17 years old when his uncle dedicated his horticultural handbook to him. 17 would indeed have been an appropriate age for a young man to attend the lectures of the royal professor of Greek at the newly established Collège de France. To Renoir, this could be the only possible relationship between Henri Etienne and Jacques Toussaint. What else could Charles have meant? One obvious objection, however, that it would be most inappropriate on the part of Charles Etienne to dedicate a children's book to a young man of 17, to say nothing of the humiliation such a young, young man might feel at being addressed publicly as Henriculus and Nepotulus, should have given Renoir pause. The tone and intent of Charles' preface could only be appropriate if it was addressed to a much younger person. It was my good fortune to uncover conclusive evidence that when Charles Etienne dedicated his De Re Hortensi to his nephew Henri, the latter was considerably younger than 17. Charles' dedicatory epistle did not first appear in 1545, as Renoir claimed, for I found it included in an earlier printing of De Re Hortensi, published in 1539, when Henri was eight years old. This earlier edition, incidentally, was indeed recorded by Renoir, who, however, as I have indicated, did not always consult the sources directly, too often relying instead on Metair's treacherous work. 
it is not quite obvious that Renoir did not personally examine all the Etienne editions which he listed in the bibliographical section of his book. For if he had, he could not possibly have failed to read Charles Etienne's dedication to his Henricolus in this 1539 edition of Beret Hortensi. Eight is a suitable age to be addressed by one's uncle hypocoristically. On the other hand, an eight-year-old boy, even a highly precautious one, as we know Henri Etienne was, would have been considered far too immature to be admitted to the sophisticated lectures of the Collège de France. But let me remind you that nowhere in Charles Etienne's preface is this actually stated. We owe this interpretation simply to Renoir's misreading of Charles Etienne's words. However, since Renoir's biographical distortion has gained universal acceptance, including by such noted scholars as Arthur Tilly and Rudolf Pfeiffer, it may be worthwhile to examine exactly what Charles Etienne said. In order to fully appreciate his words, we must know a few facts concerning Jacques Toussaint. Toussaint, who Latinized his name to Toussanus, a noted Hellenist, friend and correspondent of Erasmus, was in 1530 appointed by King Francois I as one of his first two lecteurs royaux in Greek at his newly established college, where he taught until his death in 1546. We are told that because he was in constant need of money, Toussaint supplemented his income by taking in as boarders in his home the gifted children of noble families for whom he acted as tutor in Greek and Latin. Thus, in 1540, he was tutor to Jean-Antoine de Baif, the future poet, who was eight years old at the time. Charles Etienne's preface makes it quite clear that it was in the same capacity that his eight-year-old nephew Henri was to study under Toussaint, whose function in relation to Henri, Charles describes as praeceptor, the Latin term for tutor. Even more conclusive is Charles' forecast of the sort of things his nephew may look forward to learning from his new teacher. Ab eo non tantum utriusque linguae venustatem perdisces, sed etia moris edoceberis. Not only will you learn from him a thorough appreciation of the beauties of both languages, but he will also mold your character. Both languages, of course, meant Greek and Latin. If we bear in mind the strict division of labor among the royally appointed lecteurs at the college, it immediately becomes clear that Henri could not have attended the lectures on Latin grammar by the professor of Greek at the college. Uh, nor would the impersonality of a public lecture have allowed Henri's character to be molded by Toussaint. Charles' wording clearly implies a closer, more intimate relationship, such as that which exists between a tutor and his pupil. This rereading and redating of Charles' preface to his young nephew, besides setting the record straight by dismissing an ancient misconception concerning the education of Henri Etienne II, also gives new corroboration to the prestigious position enjoyed in the intellectual life of Renaissance Paris by Robert Etienne, who could hire as private tutor to his gifted son one of the most eminent scholars of France. Many other facts about the Etiennes need to be similarly re-examined in the sources so that the history of this great Renaissance dynasty may be extricated from the long tyranny of Renoir. This sort of garbled information about the Etiennes relates not only to such specific biographical details, 
but also affects more general and more prominent features, the most conspicuous being the books themselves. Early printers commonly adopted the practice of using an emblematic device to serve as the imprint of their publications. In the 15th century, these printer's marks or devices were usually placed at the end of books with the colophons. But throughout the 16th and 17th centuries, printers displayed their devices prominently on their title pages. Thus, most Etienne editions may readily be identified as such by means of the woodcut impression of an olive tree emblem on their title pages. The first member of the Etienne dynasty to use the olive tree device was, as we have seen, Robert I, who adopted it as his, tr as, as his trademark when he took over management of the firm from his stepfather in 1526. The earliest version of this famous emblem is that reproduced as number one on those sheets. This simply shows an olive tree, one branch of which is falling off. The accompanying motto, printed vertically to the left of the tree, reads, Noli altum sapere. This motto was soon given in an expanded form, number two in your sheets, printed on two horizontal lines, Noli altum sapere sed teme. Do not become proud, but stand in awe. Of the 35 variants of the Etienne device which I was able to identify, the most universally familiar is undoubtedly that which is reproduced as number three on those sheets. This represents a barefoot, bearded figure at the base of the olive tree, pointing up at it. Several branches are falling from the tree, and several others have been grafted on. The motto is printed on a swirling banner, partly wrapped around the lowest branch. This familiar emblem is unquestionably, after the Aldine anchor and dolphin, the best known printer's device in the history of printing. It is therefore all the more surprising how widely it is misunderstood, not only by the layman, but by recognized experts. Michael Meter reproduced facsimiles of several of the Etienne olive tree devices on four pages of his Historia Stephanorum. He was later criticized for collecting and reproducing these emblems by Renoir, who felt that Meter's exercise was totally pointless, since, in his opinion, quote, these emblematic devices have no obscurity to explain or clarify, unquote. Yet, as far as I was able to discover, neither Renoir himself nor any other bibliographer or book historian has been able to see any significance in this famous device beyond the obvious fact that the Latin motto is a quotation from Romans 11.20, where St. Paul, addressing the Gentiles, says, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the richness of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember, it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. You will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast only through faith. So, do not become proud, but stand in awe. This last sentence is that which appears in Latin in the Etienne device. Which, 
thus may be considered a pictorial representation of the metaphor developed by St. Paul. The barefoot figure pointing up at the branches can only be St. Paul himself preaching his parable with a swirling banner as an early version of our speech balloon, representing the words issuing from Paul's lips. This identification is natural and even self-evident, hardly needing corroborative proof, were it not that in over four centuries, no one, as far as I know, has yet specifically named the figure standing in the Etienne printer's device. It might be argued that the identification with Paul is too obvious to warrant further emphasis. However, Renoir himself apparently did not recognize the figure, whom he vaguely refers to as un homme. More, more recently, the eminent bibliographer R.B. Macero referred to the figure as an old man standing by an olive tree. And S.H. Steinberg, in his popular 500 Years of Printing, reproduced the Etienne device describing it fancifully as the philosopher under the tree of knowledge. St. Paul's olive tree is similarly called the tree of knowledge of the Etiennes in John Carter's ABC for Book Collectors, considered the Bible of bibliophiles. However, the most blatant and unintentionally comical misinterpretation of this famous device, which I came across, occurs in the catalog of a prominent British bookseller. Here we find offered Robert Etienne's edition of the Scriptores Rei Rusticae, the Latin writers on agriculture, on whose title page our British colleague describes, quote, a fine woodcut device depicting a figure ordering the pruning of a tree <laughs> with several branches falling after having been pruned, unquote. In view of this widespread confusion, it may not be entirely superfluous to offer as corroboration for the identification of the figure with St. Paul the version of the Etienne device used on the title page of Paul Etienne's Fortius of 1612. This is reproduced as number four on those sheets. Here, the artist has introduced an additional and most revealing detail. On the ground lies an ancient Jewish headdress, which the figure has presumably discarded at his feet. It is clear that by this iconographic detail, the artist has attempted to suggest some significant event connected with the figure. The most significant event in the life of the Jew Saul, or Paul of Tarsus, was his conversion to Christianity on the road to Damascus. And it is this momentous experience that the artist has suggested here. Paul's discarding his headdress symbolizes his rejection of Judaism and adoption of Christianity. Why did Robert Etienne choose this particular emblem to adorn the titles of his publications? Could Paul, the archetypal symbol of conversion in his olive tree parable, perhaps further suggest Robert's own sympathies for the reformed religion? This hypothesis would gain some validity only if it could be demonstrated that these sympathies were present as early as 1526, when Robert Etienne first adopted is his olive tree trademark. But as Armstrong has pointed out, Robert had given no sign of adhering to any organized Protestant group previous to his departure for Geneva in 1550. We may nevertheless wonder at the relatively high number of educational tracts by noted reformers that Robert Etienne chose to publish during the, his first year as an independent printer, 
including several by Melanchthon and one by Ulrich Zwingli, disguised under a pseudonym. Perhaps a more fruitful line of inquiry may be pursued by focusing our attention on the central, most prominent element of the Etienne olive tree device, the tree itself. I believe that there exists an important bond between this olive tree and the very name Etienne. Etienne is a French form of the Greek or Latin Stephanus, which becomes Stephen in English, Esteban in Spanish, and so forth. In Greek, the noun Stephanos means a crown or wreath. Specifically, it suggests the crown made of wild olive twigs awarded as a prize of excellence to successful athletes in the public games. Thus, in a subtle way, the Etienne olive tree with its falling twigs may stand as a sort of signature suggesting the name of the Etienne or Stephanus family. It will be remembered that the pictorial suggestion of a name to a chosen trademark was a common practice among the Renaissance printers. This could be achieved as heavy-handedly as Philippe Lenoir's use of black Africans in his device, scholarly and typographical standards that Robert and his descendants set for themselves. This interpretation finds corroboration in at least three versions of the Etienne device, in which the symbolism is expressed much more overtly. The first, used by François Etienne II in his 1568 French Psalms, shows the olive tree itself crowned with a wreath, or Stephanus. The second, which adorns the title page of Henri II's 1578 Plato, number five on your sheets, shows the olive tree device enclosed within an architectural woodcut border incorporating toward the top nude male figures brandishing Stephanoi. The third occurs in Paul Etienne's 1612 Fauches, which I mentioned earlier, number four on your sheets. Here, a Stephanos has been added as a border surrounding the olive tree emblem. It should also be pointed out that Stephanoi are prominent iconographic elements of several ornamental woodcut headpieces used by Henri II. Uh, look at number six, A, B, and C. You will see that the central figures are holding up Stephanoi or reeds. Finally, that the name Stephanus suggested to the Etienne's learned contemporaries the Greek symbol of excellence may be seen from Theodore Beza's Greek epitaph for Robert Etienne, where we read the verse, Ho Stephanos, Panton, Chalcographon, Stephanos. Stephanus, of all printers, the Stephanus, the crowning glory. Um, these are some of the observations I was able to make by collecting and handling these books. I cannot emphasize strongly enough my conviction that it is only by examining the books themselves that we may hope one day to arrive at the full truth about the Etiennes and their works. The more than 300 Etienne titles in the Haynes collection should provide an ideal resource for further research. And I hope that this collection will inspire both local and visiting scholars to more significant discoveries than those I was able to contribute about the greatest, though still misunderstood, dynasty of scholar printers the world has ever known. Thank you.